welcome to The Purple Chair, a podcast from Clarion Solicitors. Clarion are one of the leading law firms in Leeds with a team of experienced and dedicated lawyers who are passionate about helping their clients achieve their goals. For Clarion, it's all about relationships. They know that strong partnerships create energy and deliver better results for you. In this podcast, we'll get to know some of Clarion's lawyers, reveal some of the law surrounding pop culture, and find out how Clarion's holistic approach develops effective and practical long-term client solutions by fully understanding both the business and the prevailing market. I'm Ian Brannan, and in this episode, a business's value is supported by the contracts made with customers and suppliers. Managing your contract portfolio, dedicating resource where needed, and coming up with low-cost solutions is an essential way for a business to preserve customers and maintain its supply chain. It's an area where businesses can really drive value. They can find a lot of easy wins in their supply chain that help improve profitability and efficiency. GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. It protects all our personal data from misuse. It can be a puzzling area of the law to navigate, but one of the most valuable steps an organisation can take is ensuring it processes personal data in compliance with the law. I think it's really difficult to think of a business that doesn't process any personal data. There are lots of really good reasons why businesses need to process data. But first, what happens when a loved one's will doesn't reflect their true intentions after their passing? We'll find out what can be done to rectify the situation. Our first guest today and joining us in the Purple Chair is Lindsay Harrison, a partner at Clarion and one of the country's leading contentious private client litigators. Hello, Lindsay. Hi. Thanks for joining us in the Purple Chair. Sounds an interesting job title. Uh, First of all, what was your route, though, into law and into Clarion? So I wanted to be a lawyer from the age of 10, actually. So lucky that I still love it now. Many, many years later, I went to a solicitor's office when I was 10 and I met a female solicitor who had crazy spiky hair and a bright pink t-shirt under her boring black suit. She was sat in front of all of her law books and I thought, wow, you can actually, you can have a bit of a personality and you can be a lawyer as well. So that was me hooked. I just loved that. It's really powerful when you see someone in that position and realise that actually you can do that. Let's look at the, the things that you do. You, you've built a, a dedicated team at Clarion and you've become an expert in the management of estates and estate disputes as well, following the death or incapacitation of a family member. Very serious subject, but tell us about that. Yeah, so I originally qualified as a commercial litigator, but I moved pretty quickly to help my private client team. They were having a lot of issues that were coming up on their files and people sort of having problems that they needed some help with. So it just sort of grew more more and more from there really. First of all it was just me, then I recruited a solicitor from another firm and then the team got busier and busier and we grew and grew some more so that we're now a team of eight and we've got one of the largest teams outside of London. We deal with a mixture of disputes following someone's death, so probate litigation, but we also do get involved where there are mental capacity disputes. So where someone has lost capacity and they're governed by the court of protection and a dispute kicks off in that court as well, we'll get involved with that as well. So we do both. And so what would be the common scenarios that you see day to day in this role? Yeah, so we see a full range of arguments over people's assets and their estates and wills and trusts. In terms of probate, probably the most common scenario is where someone has some concerns over a will being valid. They may think that their relative maybe didn't have the required capacity to make the will at the time they did. They might think that they were forced into making it by somebody. 
sometimes people have been led to believe they're going to inherit some money, but then they don't and they're really disappointed by that. So, for example, where it's a husband or wife or cohabitee or child of the person who's died, even if they didn't feature in that person's will, they can still take a claim on the estate. The idea being that the deceased person has a sort of a moral obligation and responsibility for them. In terms of capacity disputes, we sadly see a lot of financial abuse, sometimes by family members or friends or neighbours. So it's about protecting the victim because obviously they're still alive, trying to get their money back um, so that they can use it. We have certainly seen a rise in those types of cases from COVID times where people were left even more isolated and vulnerable than, than they were before. And unfortunately, that means they're even more open to financial abuse and coercion, which is incredibly sad. And is this a situation that is more prevalent now? Obviously, you've had to create a team to deal with the demand. So, so why is that? How has it got so so big? Absolutely. The area of law has been on the increase for, for the last five to 10 years, I'd say, and it is growing steadily across the country. And there's a number of reasons, really. I think that firstly, there has been a historic increase in people's wealth generally. People are living much longer now. So mental capacity related issues are rising. There's now a greater number of blended families. So, you know, people are marrying for the second, third and sometimes fourth or fifth time. So there's a lot of children involved as different spouses and ex-spouses and cohabitees. And in some cases, people are all being treated slightly differently by the person who's dying or died, and that can cause arguments. Then you also have periods of recession. So we saw it in 2008, 2009 with the financial crisis, and that's definitely very much happening again now so that people are much more prepared to fight over any wealth that's available for them to get. But I also think we're more litigious as a society, and certainly the internet has helped to educate people about their ability to take a claim in the first case. You know, people are much more prepared to Google things and figure out what they're entitled to. So I think it's for all of those reasons, really. This is a particular area of law that must require some advanced people skills. Obviously, emotions are going to be high. Tell us about how you handle these very, obviously very personal situations, but at a very emotional time for people. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think empathy and emotional intelligence are both absolutely vital. You're meeting people at the very worst part of their lives. Their loved one has died or they've lost mental capacity. And so with either of those situations, they're grieving. Even if the person is still alive, you know, someone who's suffering from dementia doesn't recognise their family always. And that's very much a grieving process for the family members. So you are getting people at the most horrible time possible. And then added to that, a fight's kicking off. So the grieving process we tend to find will just stop as soon as the fight starts brewing. So it's absolutely vital that you've got to support them. You've got to get them through that dispute as quickly as possible and get it resolved because then they can move on and then they can begin to grieve and they can move on with their lives. Empathy and understanding and almost sort of counselling is a lot of the the skills that we have to use. Those are a deep set of skills that you have there to manage that situation. But what other skills are essential for a career in law? I think an ability to work calmly under pressure is absolutely key. I think it's way, way too easy to get drawn into a stressful situation and react to it 
And that's the worst thing that you can do, whether you're working on a litigious matter, a court matter, as my team do, or if you're advising on a multi-million pound corporate transaction acquisition, like my corporate and commercial colleagues do, you have to keep calm and focused and not get drawn into things and advise your client in the best possible way that you can. Is it difficult not to take some of it home with you? Very much so, Mm. especially, you know, where you are dealing with death and a lot of the times it can bring out the worst in human behaviours. Not all the time. Sometimes it does actually bring out the best in people, but mostly it's the worst. So just trying to have that ability to to leave it at the office is really important and just trying to get as much resilience as you can to that scenario. Certainly during the pandemic when obviously there is there's a lot more deaths than usual, it became really tricky. Um, and we really had to work for everybody to make sure that their resilience was as, as good as it could be. And the work that you do has much longer lasting consequences than than just the deal uh, or yep. whatever it is that you're trying to resolve. Yeah. Because, of course, these disputes can go on for a long time. Absolutely. They can drive a huge wedge between families as well. And you're involved in that. Yeah, they do. And it can be incredibly sad. And like I said before, our aim is always to try and resolve the dispute as quickly as we can to try and salvage some sort of relationship. It's a family. It's not a commercial dispute where the parties don't ever have to transact with each other again if they don't want to. You know, the family are linked by blood bonds, if you like. It's not always possible, but it is sometimes. And we try really hard to do that where we can. And what would be your words to encourage people in in minimising disputes in the first place? Obviously, emotions are running high and and things will come to light maybe upon the death of someone that uh, they weren't previously aware of. But what would be your words of advice to avoid these disputes in the first place? I think the more that you can get organised and sorted the better it will be for everyone, really. With will and estate disputes, it's always best if you can take advice from private client solicitors, make sure that you have got your will prepared, make sure that you have also got lasting powers of attorney in place, which a lot of people forget about. They, they focus on wills. And if you don't have something like that in place, then it can become really challenging and you are still alive and you have to suffer the consequences of not being able to access your own finances. So the costs of putting those documents in place as well are a fraction of the legal cost that can be involved on the dispute side once it's all kicked off. And at that point, as you said, you know, the emotions have risen already. Things are much, much worse. So just getting everything organised and planned and sorted and telling everyone communication is also the key, I think, between family members. A lot of the disputes that we see are where people don't actually know what's going on with their opponent. And once you can get to the heart of it and explain to everybody that it's not quite what they thought, a lot of the time you can get rid of the tension and the bad feeling. We're also seeing an increase in individuals speaking to our non-contentious colleagues in the private client team for for wills and estate planning and they will then come to us on the contentious side so we sort of stress test what they're doing to see if we can minimize the potential of any disputes in the future some families are also now having almost sort of family board meetings just to tell everybody what the scenario is and what they're doing before they die if you can do that that's great but sometimes there is just going to be a dispute. It's going to happen. Um, there might not even be any merits to some of the claims that we see, but they just have to be dealt with effectively. Now, um, look at a couple of different sides of things now. Um, for anyone without a will, I'm guessing, as you've already mentioned, getting one is a good idea. But what's the worst case scenario if if you don't have one in place at the time of passing? Absolutely. I feel very passionate about being able to set down your wishes 
for what happens with everything that you've earned in your lifetime. You've worked really hard to, to accumulate the wealth that you have. It's absolutely right that you say exactly what you want to happen with it. You know, you have testamentary freedom to write your will and leave the money to or the land or whatever it is to whoever you want. So my first recommendation would be to actually to spend it all on yourself during your lifetime, but definitely to make a will if there's anything left over once you've finished enjoying it. The worst case scenario is that if you haven't said what you want to happen, it might be that it won't pass to who you want it to pass to. There can be very, very unintended consequences of of not setting it out clearly. I've seen some really awful scenarios where, for example, successful businesses have failed because the shareholdings of those businesses didn't pass as they were intended to. And just a lot of upsets caused by money or assets being passed across under the rules of intestacy, which is what applies where there is no will. And I think one of the saddest situations is that long-term partners who aren't married can also miss out where there's no will because the rules of intestacy don't recognise common law partners, even though people still believe that they do. They don't. Similar question for the lasting power of attorney that you've touched on as well. Um, Obviously, this is more for those that are uh, without the capacity to to think and and act for themselves, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. If you have written down in a lasting power of attorney who you want to act for you, and that's, you know, there's two sorts. It's managing your property and affairs to your finances and managing your health and welfare decisions. And you're choosing, you know, with capacity, you're choosing who you trust, who you want to look after those situations for you. If you don't have that and you lose capacity, your only option to be able to access your funds, your money to look after you in care homes and things like that is is to go to the court of protection and to get a deputy. And I'm extremely privileged to act for, as a deputy for, for a number of people. And it's one of the, probably the most rewarding parts of my job. But I'm sure if those people had their time again, they would prefer to choose someone that they would actually want to choose rather than a solicitor stepping in to do it after the event. Okay. So in short, wills and lasting power of attorneys <laughs> make everyone's life a lot, a lot easier. Absolutely. On the flip side, if I wanted to contest a will, if I've got wind that uh, a distant relative of mine is uh, a, a billionaire baroness and uh, <laughs> I've been sensationally left out I'm of this. I'm still waiting and, uh, for that. <laughs> well, it, it could well happen. We all are. What is the process of contesting something if you, if you don't agree with it? I would say this, wouldn't I? But call a professional, speak to a specialist solicitor, make sure they are a specialist in this area of law to really understand what your options are. There are a number of different claims that can be taken. So it's really important to talk to someone that does this type of work. Then you can start to understand, you know, do I have a case? What sort of case is it? Is it good? Is it worth pursuing? People forget, they focus on the money and how much it's going to cost. And it does cost a huge amount of money, but it's also the brain space that it takes up. It's every single day stuck in litigation. And once you issue a claim, you are stuck in litigation with your family. So it's just analysing all of that, making sure that you definitely want to do it. And if you're talking to a specialist, then they can do that with you and help you. You must have very difficult days but there must be some days where you come away thinking we really made a big difference in someone's life today. Absolutely. Yeah. I do find it extremely rewarding. I went into law to help people 
And I, I do really feel like me and my teams do this on a daily basis, you know, where someone has been financially abused, getting their money back is a fantastic feeling. It's just really sad that we needed in the first place. A few years ago, somebody called me, an opponent called me a vigilante because I was trying to get money back for someone that had been financially abused. And I, I thought I've made it. That's it. You know, that's, that's, that's all I want really, just to give that person the voice that they don't have. And then on the flip side, I'm really lucky as well because I can act on the non-contentious side as a deputy, as I said before, helping people who've lost capacity, access their money and live their life as happily as they can. So it's, yeah, it's really rewarding. It's almost a mix between obviously being a lawyer, but also like a social worker as well, isn't it? And a grief counsellor. And and in some cases, you know, they go on for years and years. So you become very close to the clients as well. Clarion, are there to, to help in case of a dispute? How can someone with an issue get in touch for more advice? You can contact us through our website. Both the contentious private client team and the court of protection team have web pages on there. Um, you can contact me directly. My number and my email is on that. Or you can contact any of the two teams or call our reception. There's lots of different ways to get through to us and we're happy to have a chat. We just would really like to help people. And help people, you certainly do. Thanks a lot, Lindsay. Uh, lovely you. speaking with you. Thanks for joining us Thanks. in the purple chair. I need to get that will sorted. This is The Purple Chair, a podcast from Clarion Solicitors. Ensuring the lawful processing of personal data is crucial, and the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, plays a pivotal role in safeguarding against the misuse of yours and my personal data. While this legal area may seem complex, it is essential for organisations to navigate it and uphold compliance with the law. Let's find out more from Flo Maxwell, a legal director at Clarion specialising in data and information law. Hi, Flo. Welcome to the Purple Chair. Hello. Hi. Nice to meet you. You too. Uh, Let's start then. This abbreviation GDPR strikes fear into many (laughs) uh, business owners. It can be seen as a bit of a nuisance, but it is absolutely essential, isn't it? And a, a very serious thing for keeping personal data, data on me, on you, on everyone safe. Yeah, it really is. It's really important. And not just GDPR, but all the bits and pieces that come alongside it. So the Data Protection Act, PECA, which are the Privacy and Electronic Communication Regs, and they regulate online marketing and the use of cookies and and things like that. And I know it can all be seen as a bit of a pain for businesses and sometimes for individuals as well. If you feel like you're getting constant pop-up messages when you're on the internet or when phone calls are taken up with a load of GDPR blurb, that kind of thing. But I think one of the reasons that I wanted to specialise in data and privacy is because it feels so relevant and relatable. So I'm really conscious that I splurge my information around each time I buy something online or I sign up to a new service or, you know, you you accept marketing so you can get a discount on your first order, that kind of thing. And even when I've been to hospital in the past, I've noticed that my paper file is just sitting on a desk with a load of other people's files, presumably with all our medical information in. And I just, I just find it really interesting and really relevant. So Although I do understand that the legal and the compliance side can be a bit of a pain, I think it's fairly easy to see how important the legislation is when you think about it from a kind of philosophical perspective or how you'd be impacted perhaps if your data could just be flung around. 
and it can be so easy to do as well. And this is the the thing we're probably going to cover. So what are the key points of GDPR that businesses should uh, be bearing in mind? So I I think it would be easy for me to sort of list documents and things like that that businesses should have in place. But they're almost a red herring, if you like, when it comes to thinking about what a business needs to really do to protect the data that they're processing. So a good starting point is for an organisation to think about the key principles of GDPR and make sure that those principles are being met. And obviously the documents and whatnot are still important and failing to put certain documents in place would constitute a breach. But there's no point producing a really great legally compliant document if the processes that sit behind it just aren't there. And can you give us some examples really of that in action then? Yeah, so, um, you know, there's a potentially huge list I could go through. But if I just think about some of the areas that we regularly advise on, organisations need to make sure that if they're relying on consent, for example, to process data, that consent needs to be GDPR compliant. So it needs to be expressed and opt in, not opt out. If they're relying on legitimate interest, have they thought about whether a legitimate interest assessment should be carried out? And if your privacy policy says we'll keep data for no more than six years, has the organisation actually got the deletion processes in place to make sure that it is deleted at the end of that six year period? And then things like data subject access requests, do you know what you're doing with it? If you receive one, do you know what to do if a breach or a potential breach has happened? So I think it's difficult to choose just a few examples, but my main piece of advice would be to understand what steps you need to take practically to achieve compliance and then make sure that those are backed up with the necessary documents. What constitutes personal data? Is my name just enough to be considered personal data? And why might businesses hold that data? Personal data covers a lot more information than many people realise. So it does include all that obvious stuff like name, email address, home address, job role and so on. But it also includes information such as opinions about an individual or opinions that individual has given about something and information from which you learn something about the individual. And also the more sensitive information such as medical, the health data, um, religious, cultural beliefs and so on. I think it's really difficult to think of a business that doesn't process any personal data, whether it's about customers, clients, employees, business contacts. There are lots of really good reasons why businesses need to process data. But a lot of the time, it's kind of the fudgier areas where the processing gets interesting. Like We've helped a lot of organisations dealing with data subject access requests. And that's where things can get a bit difficult. If, for example, if you've got a couple of colleagues who have been moaning about another colleague over WhatsApp, it feels like such an easy thing to do. But anything written down about their colleague, whether it's derogatory, scathing, positive, it doesn't matter. It could be captured by a data subject request because it constitutes personal data. So it's really important to make sure there's employee awareness in the business around what should and shouldn't be written down. And I guess if in doubt, say it, don't write it. And that covers then, you know, personal communications there then in that case. Yeah. So in a data subject request, for example, it could potentially capture information written down on personal devices. So um, again, it's really important to have a policy there that says to employees, don't use your personal phones for work purposes, because if personal phones are regularly used for work purposes or encouraged to be used for work purposes, you potentially have to do your best to search those devices for personal data as well. And what are the consequences for getting it wrong? They can be they can be quite harsh, actually, can't they? Yeah, I mean, the worst case scenario is that the Information Commissioner's Office could get involved and potentially start an investigation that could take up valuable time um, and resource for the organisation and even result in a fine, although they are usually safe for the most egregious breaches. And that's the kind of obvious consequence. But outside of that, 
getting something wrong could lead to just dissatisfaction or annoyance even aimed at your organization. I think a good example is, is marketing. So if an organization's dodgy marketing practices are frustrating customers or potential customers, or if personal data that the organization controls has been mislaid or unlawfully accessed or something like that, then it has real potential to have a detrimental effect for the business, both financially and reputationally. Technology is ever-changing, no doubt AI starting to get involved in things as well. As these rapid changes in technology come along, will there be likely more legislation down the track to, to look after? Yeah, there will be. And I think data protection is quite an interesting one because historically it's taken quite a while to catch up with technology and with the changes. So if you think about the DPA 1998, it took until GDPR in 2016 for that to be updated and so much changed in terms of technological advances between the two. So, you know, websites such as Amazon and eBay, they were maybe three or four years old in 1998, nothing compared to what they were by 2016. Just Eat had only just started. I'm, I'm not even sure if there were any dating websites around in 98. So historically, it's not been great with keeping up with the changes. And GDPR did fix some of that. But there is going to be more legislation, partly as a result of advances in technology, also as a result of Brexit. So we've got the Data Protection and Digital Information Law Bill, which has just gone through the final stages of the House of Commons, which is a slightly controversial piece of legislation because it went through the consultation process. And then since then, more changes have been made without consultation. And one of the purposes really of that piece of legislation is to make life a bit easier for businesses. So it's arguably taking away some of the benefits of the legislation for individuals. And I know organisations out there might be thinking, oh, this is great, but actually it's really important to think about whether you're doing the right thing. You know, even if you're complying with legislation, are you processing data in a way that your customers and your employees will be comfortable with? There's also a a new piece of EU legislation known as the the e-privacy directive, And that will change some aspects of online marketing and also cookie consent. Obviously, post-Brexit, that's not going to apply directly in the UK, but I think the chances are the UK is going to follow. And then you mentioned AI, which is a really interesting area at the moment. There are three new pieces of AI legislation in the EU, and there is one new piece of AI legislation, which is pretty short at the moment. I don't know if it will change. And one of the key points of that is the idea, this is in the UK, so the idea that an AI authority will be set up. I think the chances with the way that AI is evolving, there is going to be additional legislation. There's so many potential risks with AI. I mean, huge benefits as well, but from a data and privacy perspective, so many risks that need to be considered. So I think we will see more changes in addition to those that we already know about. And with this whole topic of of GDPR, which um, as, as you've covered really can have huge repercussions on businesses, but also can be a bit of a a minefield to to wade through depending on what your sector is. How can Clarion help a business with their GDPR considerations? Yeah, so broadly speaking, we can we can do everything in terms of UK and EU GDPR compliance and also all other related data protection and privacy legislation. We help a wide range of businesses from local startups to owner-managed businesses, national companies and international corporates. And, and if an organisation processes data in another jurisdiction, then we've got a great network of foreign lawyers that we can go to to source advice there. We've got a really great team. Everyone's obviously, you know, really technically skilled and knowledgeable, which kind of goes without saying. But we also want to make GDPR easy to understand and even 
enjoyable potentially for some businesses to deal with. We did have a client who said we'd made it fun, which has only happened once, but you know, (laughs) that felt like an achievement. So we can help businesses make sure they understand what they need to be doing and how to do it. We can produce the documents that are required under the legislation. We can make sure marketing practices are compliant, you know, but also that marketing databases are maximised to the extent possible. If an organisation receives a subject access request or another request, we can help deal with that. If they've got concerns about breaches of the legislation, we can help with that as well. And I haven't covered half the things we deal with in that kind of summary, but hopefully it gives a flavour of what we do. And we're always happy to just help and chat things through if anybody does need anything. There you go. Making GDPR fun, a phrase that you (laughs) thought you'd never hear. But uh, Flo Maxwell, thanks for joining us in the Purple Chair. And if people want to find out more information on this topic, how do they get in touch with you? All our contact details are on uh, the Clarion website, clarionsolicitors.com. There's a data and information law page. So that's probably the easiest starting point, I think. Okay, well, thanks for joining us on The Purple Chair. Thank you very much. This is The Purple Chair, a podcast from Clarion Solicitors. I'm Ian Brannan, and every episode we like to explore one of the themes that Clarion excel in. And in this episode, let's chat about the importance of contracts and the supply chain with Matthew Hattersley, a Clarion partner who heads up the commercial team. Hi, Matthew. Welcome to The Purple Chair. Hi, very happy to be here. Well, let's start by exploring what your commercial team does to help businesses. We do three things. We help them with big, complicated contracts, strategic contracts. We help them take piles of legal work off their desk. And we help advise them on how they should go about doing particular things that they're looking at. And and one of the areas that we spend a lot of time with businesses is working on their supply chain. It's an area where businesses can really drive value, make sure their costs are kept low. And that might be looking at individual contracts with suppliers, or it might be support with more strategic projects, such as new supply terms or supply chain audit. The term supply chain is something that we hear a lot about. Obviously, that can be different depending on your industry, but typically talk us through the supply chain in general. All we're talking about with supply chain are your suppliers to the business. And the reason we talk about a chain is quite often your suppliers will have suppliers themselves in order to build what they're doing. And so they can create a chain all the way down that can stretch geographically massive distances and raise all kinds of interesting issues down the chain. But when we're talking about strategic procurement challenges, quite often what we want to do before we start looking at all of the chain is just look at your immediate suppliers. And what generally would you say are the issues that businesses can face through a supply chain that you generally help businesses with? Yeah, so businesses that haven't focused on their suppliers for a long time, and that is a lot of businesses because there are often different things that take attention of a management team. They can find a lot of easy wins in their supply chain that help improve profitability and efficiency. For example, it might be that the products or services you're buying are no longer suitable for you. you. Your business may have changed. Or actually, if you look at the IT market, for example, how you source IT products has changed dramatically over the last five years. You might have allowed pricing to escalate without much control, and it might be something you're able to get a grip of. You might have lost a relationship with your contacts at some of these suppliers. So you've got no personal connection to the supplier again. And if you've got no personal connection, I wonder how hard they will work if there's a problem. They're likely to help the people who they know the best. You might have missed some key changes in a supplier's business. Maybe you're a business that likes to sell British, but your supplier, which used to manufacture in the UK, now maybe manufactures overseas. And that might be something that you really want to try and correct. 
and on a very legal note, understand their compliance with some of the key obligations such as data protection, anti-bribery and modern slavery. And, and I guess finally, and maybe quite topically, you want to understand the carbon footprint of the products you're sourcing. It might be cheap, but maybe it's coming an awful long way. And if you're factoring all of that into your sales pitch, it's something you need to understand. It can be quite difficult to balance all these challenges as well, though, can't it, for, for many businesses or indeed suppliers? Yeah, of course, because one of the ways that you might address supply chain issues is to reduce your number of suppliers. So you might try and focus all of your suppliers into a smaller number of people that might give you better control over price and it might give you better control over relationship management. You need to know fewer people. But I think the challenge for that is it can also reduce diversity in your supply chain. You're then preferring the big guys over the little guys. You're possibly ignoring innovative businesses that are smaller than you'd ideally like at the moment, but with nurturing can become key suppliers to you. And how can businesses go about addressing these challenges, maybe with the help of Clarion? Yeah, there's lots of things they can do. If you're a business that hasn't looked at it for a while, the first thing to do is just to review your suppliers. Do you understand who is buying what in your business? Because quite often people have authority to buy in all different functions of the business. And what you end up with is no one really understanding who's buying what. And you might have three or four people buying the same goods or services, but from three or four different people. And so simply consolidating that can make a big saving. As I said, the IT market has changed dramatically over the last few years, and it might be that your current solution really isn't very good and suitable for your business now, and there might be better and cheaper solutions available. You might want to look down your supply chain as well. If you haven't done a review for a few years, then it's very important to take account of some of the legal issues such as the Modern Slavery Act and the anti-bribery legislation. And an easy way to do that is to just ask your suppliers. So create an easy to answer questionnaire for your suppliers, asking all of these things. And then when you get that information back, you can consider whether the answers are suitable. What you might choose to do is spend more time looking at the suppliers and their answers where they're based in higher risk jurisdictions or where they're supplying something really important to you than you would for the businesses that are maybe located just down the road or supplying very generic items. Let's um, give some free advice now, if we can, to to people listening to this and uh, just to cover the most important things that businesses can do to maintain a healthy supply chain? What should be the things that people are are looking at? Well, assuming that you have reasonable contracts in place and you've done your supply chain audits, the thing that can really make the difference is relationships. And this has surprised me. I was chatting to a head of procurement for one of the large retailers and he said that it was relationships that they prioritised in the team. It wasn't price. They're not saying price isn't important, but by building that relationship, you get a supplier who will bring innovation to you. You'll get a supplier who will prioritise you if there's a shortage of that product or if their service goes down, you might be first in the queue for it to be restored. And through that relationship, you'll learn what underpins their pricing. And if there are changes in the market, such as the big energy prices last year, you'll understand how much that can impact their pricing. And in turn, you can be reasonable about what it is that they need in order to maintain a, a competitive product for you. 
It comes back to that old thing, I suppose, isn't it? That, that people do business with people and those personal relationships are hugely important. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. That, that is absolutely true. You mentioned working with customers. Do you ever work with suppliers? Yes, of course. Um, we're able to help suppliers reach fast and pragmatic agreements with very large businesses. Recently, an example is we, we acted for an international confectionery business and managed in only a couple of weeks to help them get a listing in one of the major high street businesses. They were delighted with that and we enabled them to get a really fast and pragmatic solution. And that can be quite difficult to achieve. It sounds easy, but obviously uh, it's not. Well, it's really difficult with retailers and very large businesses because they like to leverage their position as much as possible. But that said, if the customer wants to buy your product, then there is some balance there. And we help suppliers understand where their real risks are so that we fight the fights that are worth fighting. We don't worry about all of the legal jargon or the detail that represents low risk for a supplier. We, we don't worry about the hypotheticals. We just worry about what they can do. And if we do that, we usually find businesses will engage and they'll come to a mutually agreeable position. I think it's quite important to say that as a supplier who is supplying into a large retailer, you'll probably never truly feel comfortable with the terms that you're on. They're intentionally drafted to offer huge amount of protection to the retailer. And so it's always going to create an imbalance and no negotiation can ever make that a fair contract. But what you can do is deal with the issues that are important to you and manage the risk behind the scenes and just become comfortable with the state of play. And this, of course, is where Clarion come in and can guide you through that process. Just give us a, an overview of the range of services that you can offer businesses when it comes to supply chain management. Well, we, we do lots of things. So I think the first and most obvious thing is we will help businesses negotiate contracts. But for a customer that wants to make a contracting efficient, what we might do is prepare a standard suite of contracts that they're able to use time and time again. And those sorts of documents, other than minor changes to reflect updates in law, might not need changing for five or even 10 years in some cases. So it's a really good investment. But other things that we can do will include helping train you and possibly even your suppliers on important issues such as the Modern Slavery Act and the anti-bribery legislation, which with an international supply chain where often you don't personally know the individuals who are supplying to you, it's really important to try and push those important obligations down the supply chain. And Matthew, if someone is uh, listening to this now and they're uh, thinking of getting in touch with you and, and your team, how do they get in touch? I think the easiest way is just to come to the Clarion website and either look for me, look for the commercial team or look for our supply chain pages. Well, thanks for joining us, Matthew, and uh, taking us on a, a journey there through, uh, through the supply chain. And uh, thanks for joining us in the Purple Chair. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Purple Chair, a podcast from Clarion Solicitors. And please don't forget to hit subscribe and rate it as well. To find out more about how Clarion can help you or your business, head to clarionsolicitors.com. Until next time, from me, Ian Brannan, and my guests, Lindsay, Flo, and Matthew, goodbye. Goodbye.